Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is someone I have been waiting a long time for. Welcome, Becky. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, hello. And I'm so sorry to keep you waiting all those uh, all those months, but it's been a busy time. My name is Professor Becky Early, and I am a researcher um, working at University of the Arts in London. But you weren't born a professor. It has been a sort of long uh, and rocky road to where you are today. Can you tell us a bit about where you started out and yeah. where your journey has taken you? Yeah, it has been an interesting journey. I certainly didn't think I would become a research professor. Um, I was born in the countryside, real country girl, um, from generations of farming, farm hands, really. Um, and uh, I started to study art at school and went on to art college, uh, studied textiles, came to London to do my master's at Central St. Martin's in fashion and textiles. And upon leaving, set up a little label, really, very by chance. Um, I'd made some great friends at St. Martin's, and they were stylists and photographers and just launched a magazine called Days and Confused. So it was really quite a long time ago. And um, I started to dress sort of pop stars with this gang of people and, and make, a little, make little collections that I sold in. In stores and sort of almost by accident became a fashion designer uh, and that was great but a few years into that of paying for my studio on Brick Lane and doing catwalk shows I was finding it to be a very fast treadmill and I started to look to sort of find projects really that I could do that would sort of um, take me in a different direction so I did um, lots of collaborations with artists and applied for arts funding to do sort of installation projects and gradually sort of just moved my practice really um and at the same time I started teaching and, and once I started teaching on a textiles course sort of discovered this world of research and um it was great because I was already asking questions in my practice in my studio and then I got to sort of do that for a living uh as a researcher and then work my way up um to becoming a professor in I think um, about 2014 2013 if I can remember correctly but I'm I run research centers that's what I really do I, I'm on my third research center at the moment and I just love building a community of um, young aspiring very bright mostly women who all want to see a different fashion and textile industry in the future it's quite a, quite a strange sort of career move because I think for most people, being a fashion designer and clothing pop stars and having an atelier on Brick Lane would have been living the dream, but not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was always. I think I think it was because it was pre digital printing in the industry. I was making everything by hand, so every single thing I produced under the label had to be hand printed by me. Um, and not even screen printed, but printed by laying objects onto cloth and then heat pressing. So it was really what I had was a craft practice, trying to fit into a fashion model. And I was quite successful, which meant because of having an agent, the sales were really high. So I got to one August and I had 
£40,000 worth of orders to hand make, you know, and uh, there was no way of reproducing the effect I was getting by hand. So I, I kind of, I suppose what I did was decided to stop production whilst I worked out how to scale up. And then I never really went back to production after that, because I started on this research journey, then looking at, that's when I discovered the impacts that were coming from the industry. And that's when I started to just really ask different questions. So where did the research start? What was your initial interest? Yeah, I was teaching two days a week um, at Chelsea on the textiles course. And there was a wonderful professor there called Kay Politovic. And she had begun a research group and I joined it. And really, as soon as I saw the reports that they were looking at, so going back to sort of reports from 1991 onwards, we were able to see the impacts that were created through design decisions. Um, 80 to 90 percent was the statistic that we were looking at at the time. This is the mid mid 90s. Um, and we were we realized that we were teaching and practicing as textile designers with no knowledge whatsoever of what those impacts were, what this 80 to 90 percent was. So we were looking at reports published by the UN and very sort of um, high level organizations, but realizing that the education system we were absolutely central to was really un, you know, underprepared to educate the next generation of designers. So the, the questions were, what are these design, what are these design decisions? What is design if it's going to be better? How do we need to change it? How could it be better? And so eco-design and green design became the thing that we we really started to look at. What sort of design decisions were being made then? Well, I mean, it's 30 years ago. We're still pretty much there still. But what were the ones they were looking at then? Yeah, well, it was the time of Catherine Hamnett's um, raising awareness around the impacts of cotton farming, of pesticides and cotton farmers. Um, It was the time that Nike sweatshop labour and children was first being exposed. Um, There had been the first reports around the use of oil uh, and the levels that that was having an impact. Um, You could even see, go back to sort of issues of ID magazine in the early 90s to see the beginning of that reporting. Um, most of our work at that time was looking at alternative alternative materials. So everybody would say to us, what's the best material to use? And we would say organic cotton. <laughs> and, you know, and then, uh, you know, in terms of dyeing, it would be how can I do this with natural dyes? You know, and then for labor, it would be and where can I make this where the where the labor conditions would be fair? So sort of the fundamental principles you can see in a brand like maybe People Tree, you know, they, they were they were the one, the big questions we were asking back then. But because we had a hundred or so textile students each year, we were also working on research with them. And so it it diversified quite quickly. It was about wool, it was about a lot about recycling and reuse of materials very early on. And um and that's really where a lot of our research has grown from is, is either us reusing materials or, or the students reusing the materials. And quite often that was driven by cost. It was just cheaper for us to be sourcing secondhand or offcuts or than buying sort of 
really expensive silks to use. Um, so a lot of those questions, yeah, from 30 years ago, they haven't changed that much. The, the questions for textiles, you know, still still about toxicity, exploitation. Um, and it's, but what we have now is a much better way of looking at the impacts. We really, really understand them because we have things like life cycle assessment uh, and lots of partners now. We have, we don't work alone anymore. We work with all the experts around the table coming together to make, to make sort of more systemic change. Even that the sort of the same questions have been asked for 30 years, is there more of a will to listen now? Or have it must be incredibly frustrating working on something like that for thirty years and still asking the same questions. Although I do sense that there has been progress, so it's not sort of totally without progress. But but still, no. I mean, by that I mean that is a little bit um, general. I do mean I, we still get asked almost weekly, "What's the best material? What's the most sustainable material?" Please, and we say there isn't one. Where should we start? You know, we have mm. to look at the full context. So, um, in a sense, those questions haven't changed. But yes, you're right. I mean, gosh, everything else has changed. Um, yeah, I think we were niche as um, a group of designers that began to challenge some of the industry, big industry players. And um, it was an uphill battle. But I think we, were, we all knew that. And we were all very happy to take that on as a group. And our students to almost equip them to be the ones who went into industry to ask difficult questions. We sort of explained to them that it wouldn't be a situation where they would automatically get a job as a eco designer, you know, it would be a change process. Um, I think what's really noticeable is just how much has changed in the last five years. Just, you know, you can sort of imagine a graph and a curve just how steep the increase it has been in the last few years as this gets put on the a, a broader set of agendas as it aligns to net zero as it aligns to the sdgs as the eu take on the central policy around textiles and fashion you know all the companies now it's not a case of us knocking on the door trying to get in it's a case of them knocking on our door you know, weekly saying, come help us, come help us. We've got to change. When you were, now this is just for the listeners, uh, Becky was illustrating a graph using a hand gesture. And Becky, I was sure you were going to say that was the graph showing the increase in use of polyester. <laughs> but it wasn't, but that is really, really the same graph, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure it's had that. Yeah, it's not quite as steep as the interest. Um, there's a lot of interesting push and pulls around material use, I have to say, because of course it's, um, uh, a much maligned fiber but I always have to remind my students that it's the byproduct of the fuel industry that we're not drilling oil to make polyester we're making polyester and plastics out of the waste from fuel and um, uh, aviation and uh, transportation needs and those materials because they're light and strong as well as cheap you know they are they are viable they won't disappear completely we just have to use them in better ways we've been working almost designing in the dark i would say um with our material choices 
so I, I, I tend to be, I like listening to all podcasts on sustainable fashion to really get a sense of what people want and feel strongly about. But my team and I always come in as the textile researchers who have a, a broad palette of options, almost like an ecosystem where we're not banning anything. We're just trying to find the right balance for the future. Um, so, yeah, everybody, it's like that silver bullet thing of like, what's the most sustainable fabric? And we always used to say, well, yes, you can definitely start with organic cotton. Well, now we know you can't say that's the answer because there isn't enough organic cotton. It's not going to clothe all of us. It doesn't perform for every garment in exactly the way that you, you need. Mm. We do need blends, you know, so, so we've actually got to look at what material for what garment at what price point when we're talking about materials. What you said about uh, polyester being a byproduct of, say, car fuel is fascinating because that is an aspect that is never mentioned. Oil that we pump up is this mysterious fluid gas, uh, and we know that it goes to fuel our cars and aviation fuel and polyester. But the fact that if we're driving cars fossil-fueled, that there also is a part of this oil that would, I don't know, be thrown away if it wasn't made into polyester or plastics. Because it is really That's why it's so remarkable. Cheap. <laughs> yes. The, the stuff we pump up, it has just so many possibilities and has meant so much for humans. Well, that's, yeah, it's so, when you look at the reports on textiles and it says this number of barrels used, that's misleading because it's not barrels, it's component parts of those barrels are used for plastics and polyesters um, and other synthetic fibres. And they're so cheap because they're the byproduct of something that's a lot more expensive. So as we all know, as we all know with our petrol and diesel at the moment, it's uh, gone through the roof. Now, as much as a polyester sceptic as I am, that does actually put polyester in a slightly better light, doesn't it? Yeah, although we have, you know, we've got an industry which is out of control you know, it's 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 too big and too wasteful uh, and too exploitative. And polyester and the other synthetics are a big part of that. So, you know, I'm not I'm not saying uh, I have worked in polyester all my, with polyester all my career. By the way, we should just for the viewers explain that I've um, my printing technique I use is with polyester. And I started using recycled polyester from Pet Fleece in 99 and won a whole load of awards for bringing this recycled poly fleece through to a sort of very finished, um, almost cashmere feeling material by heating it in different ways. And so I've had this long standing sort of relationship with it as a material and I can you know, handle, find really amazing ones that are beautiful to wear. But I know that more than 90% of the market's horrible stuff that makes you sweat, you know. So um, it's, it's weird. I mean, we're textile designers in our group rather than fashion designers. So we look for its uses elsewhere, as, you know, carpets, car, in, car lining, hard products and really the sort of processes of making textiles that can become other products as well, hard to soft, soft to hard. It's a fascinating material. I, 
I'm interested in the future of it now that we will start to have a lot more restrictions around oil and we're going to transition away from fossil fuels. If we're going to really accelerate that, then we're going to have a need for biosynthetics and alternatives that do for us at the moment function-wise what a polyester will do. Um, we can talk about that a bit later because this whole world of bio-based materials is is really important and a um, big part of our future. You're looking at me now and I realise that <laughs> you sort of painted me into a corner. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good, isn't it? Actually, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about polyester in a bit more of a nuanced way because it's, I suppose I get a bit exhausted by the sort of very loud activist voices saying ban this, ban that, ban, you know, when a lot of the research we do is applied, we work right in the heart of a company to look at what they need to change. And it's such a big part of their day-to-day process. It's such a big part of their um, product range quite often that what we have to work towards is sort of a a non-disruptive, non-violent transition around materials. Um, and, And yeah, we seem to rarely get the chance to really have a very nuanced conversation about the sort of rise of polyester has been quite closely followed by the rise in fast fashion, I believe, mm. with cheaper clothes and polyester offering innumerable variants of you can sort of make almost anything you like out of it. Mm. For these companies, is there any sort of way forward without polyester? No, nothing's going to be ever that cheap again, I would have thought. Um, I suppose one of our projects we've been looking at is um, circular fast and slow, so circular speeds um, to really drill down to understanding the difference between a slow circular fashion product and a fast circular fashion product. And one of the ways we worked was with um, with the idea of industrial, industrially recycled sort of paper-like materials. So if you look at a garment and the impacts that come from through a life cycle assessment, the greatest impacts come from the manufacture and production stage. It used to be with energy, for example, that it came from the laundry phase and ironing, etc. But that's no longer true because we just have so many garments in our wardrobe these days. So if all If the majority of impacts come from the production and manufacture stage of fibres and materials, then if you, how do you get materials where you've really reduced that impact? Well, one of the ways is to not use traditional manufacturing processes that have been around since the Industrial Revolution, but to look at non-wovens or self-assembling materials automated production of materials like 3D printing. So we experimented on a project in Sweden called Mistra Future Fashion with a lot of paper-like materials. So pulps blended with other fibres, sort of mashed and made into these very fine layers. It's actually a huge, huge industry, the non-wovens industry. It's in everything. It's in our shoes. It's in our houses. It's everywhere, these non-wovens. Um, so the production is lighter because you're not extruding or, or making a fibre and then making a fabric and then cutting and sewing. You, you, you know, you've got fewer steps. So we were trying to make clothes from, 
I suppose from paper, although it, strictly speaking, it's not really paper. It's got other fibres in it. And we did this with a Swedish brand called Philippa K, Philippa Carr. Um, and they called it the throwaway dress. And it's a dress sort of designed, it's dyed with local waste foods. And it's designed to be worn maybe up to three times. And then it can compost in your garden. Um, Sounds like a hard sell. Yeah. a paper dress, it's dyed with food waste. Yeah. And then you can compost it in the garden. Well, you know, and this is interesting. When, when we, they're a very luxury, sort of quite slow brand. When we did the workshop, the process with them of, of thinking this through, we went through their wardrobes with them and designers in brands have a lot of their own labels in their in their wardrobes because they get them from the sample sales or they get you know the collections when they come out so we said okay dig through your wardrobe find something that you've worn a lot and then find something you've not worn at all and we got them to bring it all in and we had a good look at it together and the shocking thing is that there's everybody has stuff they've not worn at all so they bought it thinking I will be this person who wears this pink skirt. I will be this person. I can be this. And they're sort of experimenting, you know, and it doesn't quite work. Every, they never leave the bedroom with it. It just, and yet they can't take it back. And so then it hangs there. So the impact of an unworn product, no matter what it's made from or what it's cost, is huge. That's just waste. So one of the sort of questions was, well, what if we made those kinds of products out of something that we could afford to let go of? What if we were, when we were doing our experimenting of this is the new me, or I want to try a different look, we're doing it with something that's not so high in impact. Is that because, say, the impact of making a product might be offset by, say, being worn 100 times, but if you're not wearing it even once... It's yeah. just like a battery stored up all its impact there. So it's like price per wear versus years own, mm. which is a really important factor. So then you start looking at all the things that are only ever worn once or never at all. And if you start asking that question, it's really shocking because 30% of all fabric produced globally is never used. So collections that trashed or and you know don't sell uh, items that don't sell um end of rolls in mass production is a big one all the samples produced all the sample books you know all that so um a color can come out slightly wrong and just have to be burnt so we're producing you know a huge amount of stuff that's not even getting a chance to get worn so what, we're, what we tend to do as a, as a group of researchers is ask very human-centric questions. You know, it's we absolutely sort of sign up to sustainability principles, but we also sort of ask who, who's the human in this and how are they behaving and what are their needs? And are we really as designers designing for them yet? Or are we still trying to get them to come into this old system that we set up for fashion? No, in the middle of last century. I'm deadly curious to hear the answer yeah. to this. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, look, I'll give you an example, right? You know, and then it's happening already. But 
here I am, Mrs. Sustainable, managing my own wardrobe, trying not to buy, banning myself from buying from a year at a time. You know, I'm, I've got all these principles. I've got all these activities. And then I have kids. And then my kids are just like, want new trainers, mum. Want them in this colour. I want to go here, mum. I, I want to buy this from ASOS because my friends have got, you know, and, and they just want. It's their peer group. It's their... It's the conversations with friends. You know, this is who they are. They are exploring their identities every time they, they choose what they're wearing that day. And I've seen it with my daughter since the age of like three. I, I mean, I was, you know, not able to choose her clothes from a really young age. She's like, no, mummy, this is what I'm wearing. It's a big part of their identities. And so you have to tread very carefully and nurture these young people in different directions so I kind of get my daughter to go secondhand shopping as much as I can instead of you know and help her manage her money my son the same thing I've got him on vintage now rather than going to the sports shops to buy the new labels because he can get more for his money he's shocked at the great stuff he can get for five quid through the post rather than you know on the high street so this is their real needs. This is the point of what we're talking about. Like, what are their real needs? Is my job to change them as people and bash them over the head and tell them, no, you can't have that? Or is it to help cultivate their joy of fashion, but in better ways, alternate ways? Now, if you go and ask a designer, are they designing for that kind of need? Are they taught? Have they been taught on their design course? to design for shifting tastes, shifting sizes. You know, no, it's they're, they're trained to adhere to fast mass production. And of course, what we really need to be teaching is human-centered design, service design, system design, sharing economy, circular economy. And we, we are seeing it now in the education of designers, but it's, it's slow because, of course, it's, it's driven by the market forces. And what do we have now since the pandemic? We have a massive portfolio of secondhand resale platforms. I've been giving lectures to brands about secondhand resale platforms. My first lecture was at H&M in 2011, and I showed them I'd been tracking the resale of H&M products on eBay for a year with one of my students, and I showed it to them, and, and I said to them, you're missing this. <laughs> You know, this could be something you integrate into your business. And they're like, we'll never make any money out of that. That'll never be part of what we do. Like every brand says when they're presented with um, you know, something that just doesn't seem to fit into their business model. So it's taken 10 years. But um, yeah, there's an explosion of resale. All it took was the prices of materials to go up and shipping and pandemic disruptions. So that is the explanation why all these brands are now doing a resale platform, because I suspected it was because they weren't be, be going to be able to claim sustainability in any other way. It's just a sort of greenwashing thing. You, re you reckon they're making money on it? Well, no. I mean, I think it's the beginning of that curve. I think they will. The predictions are or, uh, not done by me. I mean, you can look at them up on Business of Fashion. Uh, and on other research websites predicting the resale economy. 
So I think that really helped. About two years ago, there was a series of reports that came out that looked at the growth of the resale market and, and how huge it was set to be. So that's really helped. When they set them up, they're not profitable, but they've been sort of shown how it builds customer loyalty and a service and a relationship between the customers who will, in principle, buy new and partake in their resale uh, platform. So it's about sort of increasing and building on the existing model. But what you're talking about in terms of almost potential greenwashing, I think, is when, when brands do something like a resale platform, thinking that that's their way to becoming green. You know, we can be quite cynical about that. From my experience, what's interesting is that to do a circular, to become a circular brand, to make something recycled and recyclable and truly close the loop, they have to completely redesign their supply chain. They actually, it's easier to become a new company set up to be circular than it is to change from a traditional linear company into a circular one. So what they've been encouraged to do by various consultants is to bolt on services to help them ease into these circular conversations whilst they look at how to change the the supply chain perhaps because what you're thinking then is that if i started a company and i made one little product that once you had finished using it you could send it back and i could make some uh, regenerate it or make something else out of it then i had could control my supply chain and hence this circular a lot of it is about knowing what you're feeding through the loops in the future so if you've got knowledge and control over those products that will help but i think they're also people know that they're never going to be really recycling their own product 100 percent in a profitable way the economies of scale and the requirements of regenerating into a new material mean that we're off, we're going to be tagging things and sending them after the product has been resold the materials in that product will have to be regenerated on mass elsewhere that will never be or very rarely be happening on site with a company recycling its own products and i imagine part of that is that over say decades the amount of different products different fiber mixes just everything you've made is just so diverse that there's no simple way of recycling it it's no, and I think that's why the, the increase of companies, uh, innovations like Circular Fashion Berlin with their Circularity ID is, is super important because we're now getting to the point where we're tagging with products as they get produced. So we have a way of tracing exactly what's in them and therefore exactly what recycler we should be aiming towards that product, pushing that product towards further down the line. So this whole new way of designing has emerged where you start with the recycler that you're working with, with that product, and then you work backwards from that ultimate end of life. Do these recyclers exist today? Well, some. You'll be, it's actually very difficult because for a, uh, a consultancy like Circular Fashion Berlin, it, the people that work with them, their clients, do find it restricting because they can just choose like this polyester recycler here or this cellulose regenerator that will be more commonly available in five years but currently not so available. You know, so you have to work with a futures focus. 
But if you're making durable, long-life products, that's not so unrealistic. If you're making a product where you're expecting to last 10 years, you've got the industry's got 10 years to, to evolve more, invest in more plants, build more plants. Basically sort of pushing the problem ahead of us and hoping that they'll catch up. If we're in the business of making products, making products more knowingly that there are roots emerging. So the importance of knowing what technology is getting investment, why and where and how that's taking place is, is, is crucial. If you want to be able to say that you've closed your loop. I'm a bit extra sceptical these days because I saw uh, this uh, documentary called Why Plastics the other day, uh, where the third episode is about plastic recycling which basically isn't happening. It's basically being transported to low-cost countries where they could just dump it or being burnt, in other words. And it was just such a blow. I mean, I've suspected that things weren't kosher there, but this was just, wow. Yeah. So so everyone claiming (laughs) massive things within recycling and sustainability and stuff now, they've got an extra tough... um... Broken systems, leakages, breaks... Yeah, it's not in any way um, a perfect loop anywhere. But I think the the recent report by RAP, it's called Textiles 2030, is an interesting read because it's sort of saying, which is, they say it really well, circularity isn't going to be everything. It's not going to provide all the answers, but it's an important part of changing the industry. And, and achieving net zero. And in their estimation, they've kind of built on some research from the Mistra Future Fashion uh, Consortium. They set out to look at how they could reduce the emissions by 50% in the fashion industry. And then RAP had a look at the UK and proposed a roadmap for how to reduce emissions by 50%. And they say 26% of that will be through circularity. And I think it's quite a realistic report in that they're sort of saying it comes from choosing recycled fibres, it comes from design for durability, and it comes from design for recycling. And that means you make a product which doesn't have the things that stop it from being recycled in the future. So an example of that would be you make a denim jacket and then you coat it in PVC. You know, you've done something nasty on top of a perfectly good material. You know, so design for recycling is about all about enabling this future action to take place. Now, that's our job as the material designers. Then we've got to be working with the systems designers, the logistics, user behavior, to try to really reduce all those leakages. And we've got to work with policy and the push and pull of pricing to make sure that there are incentives there. For people to improve these systems and act in the way that we're hoping they'll act. So right now, our big thing is multi-stakeholder projects because these systems need to work. We need to be able to trust them. They need to function. How's that change going to? How's that sort of going to going to happen? That's going to come come about through massive collaborative actions. I have to say, uh, you mentioned uh, the denim jacket coated in what's it? Because a while back, I noticed there was a, a European brand, I think, selling a denim jacket that had this. It was treated in some way so it cleaned air, and it came with an app, so you could see 
how much air you'd cleaned while you'd been wearing it. Mm. It sounded bonkers, and I did email them, but they didn't reply because I was very curious about what the technology behind this was. But um, I imagine that wouldn't have been very recyclable either. <laughs> yeah, there's um, it's research I've, I've seen before. One of our researchers at UAL, Helen Story, she did catalytic clothing, which which uh, did the same thing. Um, it traps particles in the material but then of course which is great because your aim is to clean the air and then of course you're left with a material on the body that's that's sort of trapped the the carbon or the pollution in it so um but i think that the, the catalytic element of that is that it converts it so i'm not sure what the chemistry is but uh they're, they're, i don't, I don't sounds, think it will catch on <laughs> it sounds expensive doesn't it yeah, I, I did like what you said about design for durability. Now I'm wondering, is there a side to that which could also be designed for? Because it's okay that something's designed to be durable, and all the rest. But if you don't actually use it, it doesn't really matter. Because I've got no end of jackets downstairs, super durable, not enough for lots of lifetimes. But if I'm not using them every day, well, it's back to what we were talking about earlier, isn't it? I'm not offsetting damage that was made making them. Yeah, and getting them used. Yeah, but you're not. Okay, so I was about to sort of ask about whether we should talk about overconsumption because that's the real elephant in the room. Like, I love the research I'm involved in and all the materials and technologies that that I'm, I'm aware of and get excited by. But we all, all know that it's the volumes, the overproduction, um, and the inherent wastefulness that is the big one to address. And, and that's sort of very much about the business models, the, the profit that's built into these super optimized, speedy, linear systems. Um, but it's about us as people and every single individual and, and understanding ourselves and our needs and our behaviors. And, um, I was reading something this morning and, and it was sort of saying, we, you know, we seek the dopamine hits in constant search of, of happiness through, you know, um, fun and pleasure, uh, purchasing, et cetera. But, but we need to retrain our brains to, to look for peace and tranquility and, and to, to sort of um, really aim for that rather than the dopamine hits and it's such a human, it's such a sort of personal, subjective, human thing, this relationship we have with how we dress ourselves and what we choose to wear every day. And that stuff that's hanging in your cupboard and that stuff that's hanging in my cupboard, those purchases that were meaningful at the time and then they're not getting used enough. We've got to have systems for clothes to flow. Because I don't believe that we can change people so much that they won't want newness and to look stylish. There's so much pleasure in that. But we have to allow those clothes to come and go. Now, that might be through composting. I don't think that's going to be a mass solution. I think that's a good solution for some things. It's going to be through services. It's going to be through you selling on those jackets when you're ready to let them go or handing them on to your sons or grandsons, you know. But 
selling them on Vinted and my son can buy them. You know, we've got to get better at letting things come and go and understand a little bit more about the fact that it's okay to have a look for a while. You don't have to be that person forever. You can change. I mean, I've gone from being dark haired to white. My clothes as a dark haired person do not don't look right on me anymore. So I've had a total color change, let alone a body shape and size change as I've become a mother, etc. So my wardrobes had to change. It doesn't matter whether those things were built to last or good choices at the time. In fact, I've got boxes full of Vivian Westwood size 10 things I can't fit into anymore. I'm going to have to let them go at some point, you know. But what is this relationship? What is this system? Do we have enough ways of letting things flow? Well, there has always been ways. And I was thinking about it because there's a sort of, I know this is going to sound super nerdy, but there's a segment of men who like jackets. And there are forums and places where they sell jackets to each other. So the, there's always various stuff sort of flowing around. And this has been going on for donkey's years. And you've got eBay, you've got Grailed, you've got whatever. So the fact that the brands are getting in on the game now, they're just late to the party because stuff has been sold forever. And that's the quality stuff which is being sold. I mean, the sort of cheap, nasty stuff does go for recycling or charity shops or whatever. Or actually now it's all on Vinted and the kids, that's what they do with their pocket money. They sell their clothes for two quid and get it, you know, it's crazy. That's, that's Kids are doing that now. They can get their little mini skirt for pound fifty in the post for them, you know, two or three days later. It's pretty empowering. I mean, it seems harmless, but of course that is sort of enabling because that is the second stage of the fast fashion it's doing the rounds again. It's got a carbon footprint every time it's posted. Yeah, but I mean, that's got to be better than it being, you know, bagged up and dumped somewhere. We've got very imperfect systems. We have so much potential for great systems here. Um, I don't think everything that flows should be the best quality and super durable brands. And I personally love good quality clothes but I'm in a price income bracket where I can afford that in a stage of my life where I appreciate that but that wasn't me age 17 and 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 so we need a, a much broader palette of options and we need to be a lot less judgy about them I think because humans have all kinds of needs and identities when you say judgy, where where are you thinking then? <laughs> oh, I wasn't pointing that at you. I, I That's a little bit of a... Um, I suppose when I've been in attending events uh, about sustainable fashion and debating this on panels, etc., for a really, really, really long time, and you do get into quite heated discussions with people who are very, very passionate about all the wrongs in the industry how wrong it is, how bad it is, how, you know, and we should stop this, we should ban this, da, 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 da. you know, and and of course I've worked with students for all these years too, so they're, they're often the ones, they are so passionate and, and they want change and they want things to be better and they can't understand why it just can't be, why can't you pay your workers this much, why can't you do that? But you know if you've been in the industry, you know what the reality of the systems are, you know the politics and the pricing mechanisms that are at 
play. And it's not simply a case of somebody making a decision that that's the change. It's the impact of that change, the impact of those decisions is, is, is sort of huge. So I suppose when I say sort of, you know, judgy or preachy, it's because our, the loudest voices are often asking for the least reasonable things, I suppose, or the most idealistic things. Um, but I've chosen to spend my career with, with, with brands trying to instigate change from the inside. I've chosen to uh, work like that because I worked out that I could either carry on making small clothing runs of sustainable recycled polyester and have a, an impact that way, or I could take my knowledge and make changes at scale in bigger companies and have an impact that way. Um, and I'm sort of doing both, but I do think that when you make a small change on a clothing line that's produced by the million unit, you know, if you're working with a life cycle assessment on that product, then you can really viably see that you've, you've made an improvement. You've saved water, you've saved energy, you've saved chemicals, you know, you've reduced the waste in the cutting process. And you've labelled it correctly so that it will be encouraged to be worn again, whatever it is. You know, I I believe we've all got to change. And I, I think industry has got a lot of change to go through and they need, they need guidance. But that's me as a researcher. I think other researchers work in other areas, you know. Yeah, it's interesting when you say that, um, why can't they just pay their workers properly? Is the problem there that the whole industry is based on not paying your workers properly? So asking one company to start paying wouldn't be feasible because the rest aren't? Or yes. is it just because the whole it's industry a, runs on cheap labour? It is a balance. So it's, if you go to Bangladesh or where, you know, and you want to pay the workers in that factory more, can you imagine the revolt that happens if that factory is paying their workers more? that this factory over here isn't, nor this one over here that's making this, nor this one over here. So those decisions on uh, pay are made centrally to con control the, the overarching economic pattern. So it's you can negotiate conditions, benefits and perks, but the pay level is often set beyond your control or is you know, part of a finely tuned set of decisions so it has to be done by negotiation by a group of brands working with the government in that region da, da, da. I, I it's not my area of expertise but i know i've had these conversations i've asked those questions directly to big brands and they've explained what is the process that they are going through to achieve the best they can for their workers i expect a lot of people would sort of hear arguments like that and say mm, yeah because mm. <laughs> it does sound quite easy for the brands to say something like that yeah i'm sure but we've seen changes we've seen changes um in the time since the fashion revolution got set up and more transparency and more more demands being made of the brands but i yeah i mean it's it's another area of expertise to my own for sure i suppose i'm really interested in the circular economy and circular fashion for being able to create new models that are more transparent, that are fairer. If you look at something like the, the 
gender equality question and pay through a project like She Makes, funded by the EU, then it's all about women and girls in this industry and the inequity that's there. So much of the textiles industry is, is female workers, but a tiny fraction of people at the top of the industry are females. Um, very often it's piecework, it's underpaid, but it's highly skilled, but it's undervalued. So I think circularity, because it does require new technology and new systems and new materials, if we're building new factories, if we're creating new ways of doing things, this is a really good opportunity to redress some of those balances, imbalances. Now, I know that was something you wanted to talk about. Um, is there more you can say about that? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, well, look at you can look on the She Makes website online to have a look at the great work that's going on in that project at the moment. And it's, it's lots of women and girls from school age upwards, literally it's sort of age nine to 90, um, from grannies that knit to what girls are taught in school and looking at the way in which they could be um, engineers or work in the innovation side of things and enter the industry in a different way other than a more traditional sort of piece worker. So it's really about bringing in the technology and the innovation education to a broader group um, of, of women and females. But would that also change the nature of the work that they're doing today, the, the piece work? Or would that mean getting more boys into doing what mainly girls are doing today yeah i don't know really i suppose i think automated production is is going to have an impact over the next while so this is about sort of shifting the skill set building the confidence building the knowledge base whenever i hear something's being automated i think oops there go those jobs <laughs> so this doesn't sound like sort of an overall good solution though it does would help women getting better jobs so uh, it's a bit uncertain Yes, well, quite often my research is the cutting edge and new ideas. We don't have the answers. That's why we're doing the fundamental research. <laughs> You've got to take a problem and then say, how shall we try to solve this? It's like the work at the moment. They're doing it too in the She Makes Project on wool and, you know, this the problem that farmers have got and we've all got around wool and, the, and, the, and its price. And it's a wicked problem It's because it's so bound up by... Um, competition from synthetics, the pricing of synthetics, but you know the the impacts and the processes needed to make the the wool clean, but also the quality of the wool. You know, it's a really complicated problem, and I don't. We don't have the solutions yet, but the research process is all about making sure we're asking the right questions, that we're not missing any opportunities, that we really understand this material, and actually going outside of the normal place that you would ask, that you would look for answers. So are we missing a trick? Are we not using wool somewhere that we could be using it? So some of our studies have looked at, you know, the medical industry, farming, uh, you know, again, automotives, but also turning wool into um, hard materials, breaking it down for its protein, regenerating it. You know, there's a... Because one of the problems of wool today is that We've got so much of it that isn't being used for anything. And farmers are just ploughing it into the ground because there's no money in it. Well, burning it, 
or you've got is there's a limit now on what you can put on the grounds it's used as a way to keep weeds down um and farming but um it's just too expensive to shear it too i mean the, the shearing prices uh for the farmers and then now they're even paying to store the fleeces as well but you can't get a price for the wool fleeces because of the cost of you know scouring and cleaning it and and processing it we've lost a lot of the in the uk a lot of the processing um facilities so it has to be shipped abroad and it's cost after cost and 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 then there's no demand for that for that raw material because it's cheaper to buy synthetic fiber that does something similar but not the same of course the only way i see out of this mess is for people to stop wasting their money on buying crypto and bitcoin and all that rubbish <laughs> they need to start investing in heavy tweed yes <laughs> no <laughs> no i don't want to wear tweed i've got a tweed suit i yeah i only comes out once a year i probably managed to just about keep the moths away some very interesting research coming through about secondhand and resale and moths and wool and classic clothes at the moment it's, Tell it's me. well it's just it's not my research and um i don't have the figures but so it's anecdotal and you need to look out for it maybe i'll put you in touch with the researcher when it's published but if you imagine during the pandemic there's a lot more selling and reselling of secondhand stuff yeah. um plus the temperatures are getting warmer Ooh. we are sort of shipping moths from house to house and there's an increase in carpets having to be thrown out and replaced and, you know, the sort of hidden, hidden problems on the horizon around what we're shipping uh, and sharing. Well, on the one hand, we have all the good benefits of selling our unused clothes to each other. On yeah. the other hand, we're shipping. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, this doesn't bear thinking about. No, I know. I know. I think that the, the ideas are probably that you – Maybe like you, you invest in these classic world pieces and you keep them for the whole of your lifetime and that we minimise the transition yeah. uh, over time. But it's yet to be poked around and discovered a little bit um, more what we're, what we're really talking about with that. But it's never as easy as, as it, if, if somebody's got a solution for something, you can always guarantee there's going to be other questions to ask. Yeah, I feared as much. But with all the modern ways of moving stuff around now and all the vinted and all the brands, what does this bode well for the, the traditional charity shop? Well, that's um, – no, it doesn't, does it? With, so over the pandemic, I witnessed everybody right at the beginning uh, of the pandemic. Um, everybody was at home. They had massive clear-outs. They had all this time, they did a big clear out, and then they went and dumped it at charity shops, which were closed. Uh, and the charity shops actually got fined by councils for fly tipping because the rubbish was outside their shop, you know. Um, and then when the shops reopened, they had an enormous amount of stuff donated, but very few volunteers coming back because most of the volunteers are aged. Or, or retired and vulnerable so there was quite a crisis going on in the first year of the pandemic we set up a project um i called it chariosity i wanted to know what the future was for the charity shop in the urban environment um and uh 
yeah, we got people together and started talking about solutions about what the shop could be and should be, especially given that these online platforms are easy to access for young people. You know, and if you want to find something, you can kind of do a search using keywords and it will throw up a seller for you. If somebody, mm. you know, so, so all of that is what a younger generation will enjoy. They won't be so thrilled by the old seek and find that we used to do, you know, hours of rummaging in order to find a gem and then go off for a, you know, a pint. They're, they're not quite um, in, in the same habits as us oldies um so we with that you know the charity shops have been facing really really big problems um and they either have to have a digital arm where they're selling the best of their products and that they've got an income stream coming in that way that sort of demands investment and skill sets they generally don't have um or they've got to use their assets of having a space on the high high street and that's really where it kind of came. The, the research project we did sort of came back to making proposals for how they really can host a community to, to come together, to share knowledge, share skills, um, be in the space together and provide more of a community um, feel with the clothing and the products um, at the centre than the sort of impersonal online experience that their competitors essentially are going to be able to offer. So it's going to take a real rethink. And you can kind of see it now. You've got charity shops that have got coffee or, you know, sewing evenings happening. But, of course, it's a very under-resourced area. So it's a slow, mm-hmm. a slow burn. But in the process of researching this, by bringing together lots of different people online to, to sort of do these big design hacks – we also uncovered all of the negative stories around charity shops. And there's been quite a kind of backlash about the idea of what a charity shop is and and almost the corruption and the negative impacts from charity shops as well, which was quite, quite eye-opening for me uh, to meet with researchers outside of design um, and, and hear the stories of, of, of their research. So... Yeah, it's it's going to be very interesting the next few years to see actually how charities adapt to a very different future. You're going to have to say a bit more about the negative. Oh. It's about charity shops. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I'm just going to give you some links to put in the show notes for uh, papers that have been published by other academics. But, you know, the sort of stolen goods, counterfeit goods, blood splattered yeah. goods, apparently from crime scenes that the police have then dumped and you know all sorts of incredible things but also you know because they're not up to date with their systems you know theft and 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 uh, you know, various various things you can imagine right. really but you know they have been such a fundamental part of my fashion life charity shops and I still go and clothe myself I live in a good area of London where the, the charity shops are great and uh, where you know, Mary's Living and Giving, have you come across that? So Mary Portis is a bit of a, uh, you know, um, sort of UK celebrity that, that does sort of makeovers of, of shops and um, the shopping queen, queen of shops. And she's sort of worked with, I think, Save the Children and, um, yeah, Mary's Living and, and Giving are these very selective shops where all the products are really sorted. So 
they've had the time put in to putting them on the rail nicely in groups, in colours, in and it's good brands. And honestly, I can go in there and I can get a designer dress for £20 or whatever. And it's great. It's spacious. It's light. Lovely products everywhere. You know, but they're, they're, they're really sort of um, the exception, not the rule. So we'll see. I think, it's a, I think they've got to stay as a, a part of our cultural lives. But I think that they, it's an area that needs investment. And you've got to persuade some people to put some money, some technology in their direction, I think. It's interesting because in Norway, uh, it's really only the Salvation Army that do it. And people give them so much stuff that they have central sorting factories and I think it's 80 or 90% is just loaded onto trailers and sent to Eastern Europe without even being looked at. But now that sort of vintage and thrifting has become more popular, they've also started increasing their prices. So I'll go into Salvation Army, find something that looks okay, and it will be priced so high that I think, hang on, that's not worth it. Yeah. Because charity shops are basically about having low prices, getting stuff out the door again, making room for more stock. That's where I see the circularity coming in because mm. things are being donated, sold in one endless fast loop. Mm. I see stuff in our Salvation Army shop in town, which is just hanging around for months on end. Yeah, and they, um, they've got challenges, haven't they, about sorting, automated sorting, you know, feeding through to markets where they're not going to be resold and have a negative impact on the local culture and community um they they're, they're organizations that are sort of in crisis to some extent in that the volume of product coming to them is so high but they're it's really quite antiquated in terms of the systems for sorting and, and the logistics for moving things around um but that that's also where the great opportunities are. So if you think of something like Warn Again Technologies that are developing the chemical recycling of fibres, by teaming up with um, Salvation Army, they can ensure a resource flow through to the material recycling plants that they, that they want to develop. So if we can make progress, if we can get it right, we can be feeding this through to regeneration um, processes at the right stage in the product so we have to make sure that things have been used enough before they're sent off for regeneration because you don't really want that flow of tens of tons every single day of the week being sent for regeneration no if you've got cotton tablecloths that are white from a restaurant or a hotel they've really got to be over dyed and used for something else once possibly twice before that cotton then is regenerated into lyocell you know so so you're not just designing this loop of you know end of product you've got to actually design the loops in between as well so that you're maximizing the initial input into a product i'm guessing that charity shops over time have become a bit gazumped as well because before there weren't that many clothes around so what was donated was limited by number mostly i'd imagine if someone died so the fact that today they're getting so much donated wasn't really something they'd scaled to work with. No, the the industry shifted way too fast, hasn't it, for them to sort of really understand what it is they, they've got. They're almost 
the tip of the iceberg of, of all this all these clothes underused underworn excess of clothing that sits in all of our wardrobes and that's not even talking about the crime scene clothes no the blood splattered <laughs> murder clothes oh no no can you imagine I think that's going to sit with me for a while. <laughs> yeah, me too. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter gomology, and it's easy. And uh, yeah, let's continue on. Now, about 45 minutes ago, you mentioned uh, bio-based. Yeah. So I suppose I'm very fortunate in running a research centre that I get to be involved in lots of projects and they really stretch me in all directions. And I think the one at the moment that's exciting is Hearware. Um, that's another EU-funded project and it's using bio-based agricultural waste and making new materials. But for clothes that have got to be circular and local. So it's all about looking at regional hubs now. So we know we can make circular, circular fashion, we know we can regenerate a material, you know, um, and we can resell it. But can we do that locally? Because it only really makes sense if we can develop it locally. And we're really cutting down the shipping between all these stages. So every region has a different agricultural waste. It could be seaweed in one region. It could be straw in another. Uh, it could be a food waste stream. So the project is really working with a biorefinery that's um, developing new materials. From We're testing all these different waste streams at the moment, and then we're testing strength and finish and the sort of um, flexibility of, of the, of the fibres and then proposing for local needs, the kind of clothing. We're also sort of offering guidelines for how you wear and repair those clothes and keep them in circulation in that region. And then we're proposing how they go to end of life. So at the moment, we've, we're two years in. We've done a lot of experiments with seaweed and um, straw um, that have given some really beautiful material results. But we're looking now, we're going region to region, working with local designers and finding out more about the local culture, the needs of the people, the styles locally, any traditional mending behaviours, and then making kind of propositions, really, for very circular, local clothes. And the bio-based materials is a big buzz at the moment. This is what we're hearing about everywhere, whether it's algae, whether it's you know, <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> there are too many to name. We've built a we've built a material sample collection of over a hundred samples to sort of really get our hands on with banana or you know pineapple or cacti. Um, but what we're we're finding is that the materials footprint is a lot higher if you're growing that crop to make that fabric. So although we've had we've been growing corn to make biosynthetics for quite a few years, it would be even better if we're using the by byproduct, a waste stream from agriculture. 
So we're not growing that crop specifically for the material. We're growing it for food, let's say. And this is what's left on the ground. So instead of burning the stubble, can, can the stubble become, you know, a resource for, for fashion? So it has to be a byproduct because it really reduces its LCA footprint. And then we're really trying to tackle this usefulness question that we were talking about earlier. Let's really try to make something that people need and will wear. Let's understand more about that. What is it? that makes something worn all the time and regularly and loved? And what is it that means something hangs in the wardrobe unworn? So we're looking at that in a very subjective way this time, going from region to region with different partners across Europe and, and really trying to sort of key into local tastes. Um, so it's quite a challenge. And, and, and our work package is to write the design guidelines for that. And to then, with circular fashion in Berlin, turn it into an online software feature. So we've produced lots of design guidelines in the past in the form of cards or worksheets. But really what we've learned is if it's a tool, if it could be put on the designer's home screen on their computer so it's there for them every day, then some of these ideas will really get used. So we're, we're, we're trying to help lots of people through with this technology. Interesting that one of the parts of this to make it succeed is really taking fashion, which has become extremely global now with what with social media and whatnot, and sort of bringing it home again, deglobalizing it to make it into a, a local variant. Yeah, although some parts of that supply chain will still have to be imported. Not everything can be a small local circle. That's impractical. Um, there needs to be trade between areas. So you can't have one waste stream in one area making all clothes. You're going to have to trade between hubs. And that's where it could be really exciting. But the EU, you know, they've been looking at this for, for a while. This is about distributed manufacture, you know, digitized hubs, small factory production that are linked through digital technologies to receive information from each other to enable quantities to be managed so you're not overproducing to manage those life cycle assessment figures so you've got low emissions at all stages you know it's a it's a new kind of manufacturing that's been invested in and looked at for quite a while and now we're bringing in this agricultural waste and bio-based material to really access it but i think the beautiful thing is we're also bringing in local people you know it's local mm. needs local clothes local people and that changes you know one workshop in Naples had a very different response to another workshop in um, in Slovenia, you know, and, and that's what we're becoming a lot more aware of and interested in. Yeah. I guess also part of what makes it interesting is that the concept of waste is so different all around the place. I know that our food waste goes to a, a local factory called the Magic Factory, uh, which makes it into um, bio diesel but no biogas which all the local buses run on and also into fertilizer so the farmers can actually deliver their the waste uh, vegetables and whatnot from their fields there and then they can pick up ready-made fertilizer from it but of course that's all then outside the waste chain so i don't know what we'd use around here 
Yeah, you have to, to make look our clothes into come. it. Yeah, we have to. That's interesting because we're developing these technologies, these ways of using the waste. But of course, the big question is, can we reduce the waste in the first place? Like we shouldn't have an overproduction of milk in the EU. We should be dealing with the overproduction, not making materials from it. So there's a push and pull there. And then you find that some waste streams are way better than others because they have, it's about how much cellulosic is like material is inside that waste stream. So already the EU has produced guidance on who gets the agricultural waste, you know, and I think fashion textiles is, is quite down the list after the other industries that need to reduce their um, emissions. So transportation and um, housing and architecture those are above us, of course, because they've got the biggest footprints. They've got bigger footprints. And so the needs, like who's going to get access to the waste in the future, that will be, I can almost see a film <laughs> script, you know, <laughs> waste wars as, um, as the industries that have been developed with the promise of using this stuff actually find that they can't access it. So... You just have to tap into the waste plastics. <laughs> yeah. <infinite>. Yes. <laughs> See, that's why watching that documentary isn't such a bad thing, because if you could just stop them burning it and just hold on to it, there will be a time, I believe, when we are going to be wanting it. Uh, there was another EU uh, initiative I was looking at called Trash to Cash. That's quite, quite a sort of uh, natty um, title. What's behind that? Yeah, that was a project we did between 2015 and 2018, and that was taking waste textiles and regenerating it. So we took waste cotton and waste polyester and worked with Alto University and some Finnish partners with a process, one of the processes, Ion Cell F, which created... So basically, when you're making um, a recycled... Uh, you're taking cotton and you're recycling it, you can make um, uh, oh, lyocell, uh, but that's a better quality than, than um, sort of the other synthetics that you can regenerate from. But in order to make it, you have to make sure it's got no contaminants in it and that you're using this iron cell F process, which is lighter in footprint. Um, so it was... But the project itself was actually about the collaboration. So the technology was already in existence. We were just sort of playing with uh, the materials and trying to push them a little bit further, find out how you can engineer in this process. So the one, one of the really big things about regenerated fibers is you can intervene in the material process in a way that you can't if you're traditionally making a material. So if you're making a cotton, you've got a thread from the, the plant you know mm. go through this process but when you're regenerating you go to liquid state so in that liquid state whether you've got a regenerated cotton in your pot or you've melted down polyester you have a liquid state that you can engineer in different ways so from a material point of view we were working bringing designers together with scientists to challenge each other really and collaborate on what those interventions could be so it was interesting from a materials point of view but actually the project was funded to explore the methodology and that's that's brilliant because to get circularity you have to get a whole load of people working together really well 
And if you've got a young female fashion designer in a company working with a senior male scientist, sometimes that conversation is not so good, you know? But actually, we've got to have more methods and ways of bringing everybody to the table with their own expertise, feeling valid and contributing. Because as we talked about during this whole conversation, so many people need to be involved in making circularity real. It means we've kind of got to break down a little bit the way we expect work to happen and how we expect to work. So we're about to go off to Bilbao next week to run a workshop called Who is in the Circular Design Team? And it's really about challenging people to think about everybody having expertise to contribute. Because, my God, we need users to you know, be circular consumers but we also need the brands to know their part in this and the collectors and the local council and the people on the shop floor. And the case we're using is actually wool. So we're involving the farmers. You know, these are they're fantastic projects. They're fantastic challenges. And everybody needs to feel that this is part of their future. This is something that's part of all of our lives. There's a lot of talk about energy uh, what's the energy use like for recycling, regenerating existing fibres compared to making them from scratch? Okay, again, not my area of expertise, but information we access all the time. Uh, yes, to regenerate a material uses less energy and water, but it depends on what material we're talking about. Are we talking about cotton or are we talking about polyester or are we talking about wool? Know, what energy has gone into creating that material in the first place. Um, but there are LCA studies out there. I mean, Patagonia did the first, didn't they, to show the benefits of recycling. They were showing 60% improvement uh, for energy use for a recycled polyester product versus a virgin product. I mean, if you look in the journals like Sustainability Journal, there's lots of LCA studies now that break it down much into much more nuanced questions. LCA is a science, can be, it's a spectrum. It's pretty accurate, but it's also got lots of um, assumptions in it. So you have to ask, I think the consensus is you have to ask a lot more questions than people are currently asking. You can't just say, yes, it's better. It's like, did you look here as well? Did you look at the tractor on the farm? Did you look, you know, it needs a lot more, more questions. I, I, I'll refer you back to the, to the RAP report because I think circularity and recycling will give us a certain amount of the answers. I'm really, you know, privileged to be researching in that area, but it's not everything. It's not always going to be better. And as we've already talked about, if it's not getting worn at all, then we're wasting our time. <laughs> So there are other problems. It's not going to solve everything. You talk to a circular designer and they'll be very passionate because they get very excited about the technology and what's possible. But we also have to be re real, uh, realists at the end of the day. What you were saying there reminded me of, uh, I posted something on Instagram recently and mentioned the Higgs index. And you posted a comment, we need to talk. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, just, yeah, because there's, there's such a different conversation taking place at the moment about, um, about how things are measured, you know, about companies doing LCAs that are quite 
scant and just not detailed enough. Um, and then other assumptions just being actually incorrect. Um, I think you were talking about wool and why wool is a much maligned product in the EU um, at the moment and polyester comes out better than wool and I think that was your comment. Something like that because uh, the Norwegian national costume is a very very heavy wool piece and there's been a lot of media about how the EU hates our national wool costume and wants to kill it off because it's so bad for the environment Uh, which Norwegians they find that incredibly offensive uh, and it is a bit wrong because these national costumes, I mean, they make them once and they wear them for 100 years. Of course. That is, it's a, it's, again, that is a brilliant way to illustrate what product is it you're making. Because mm. wool is, you know, for a traditional costume of cultural significance that maintains a cultural heritage and skills, that's exactly what it's got to be. But the, the uh, evidence that they're putting forward is when you do look at the fibre on, on the fibres performance from a, a life cycle assessment point of view, how impactful is it? But the questions are limited. They don't go on to say for what product. Hmm. That's the missing bit. So we've got to think, what's the best thing for jeans? What's the best thing for the barber jacket? What's the best thing for this product? What's the, you know, that's what we've got to get to. Um, much more specific. Have I convinced you about that, Nick, or are you still going to argue with me on on LinkedIn? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't like arguing online. It's so I don't sleep well when I argue online. (laughs) I know it's really stressful. I'm just waiting for the comments to come back from this podcast already. I wanted to talk about speeds and this nuance around understanding your wardrobe for its for it how often you're wearing things how fast that product is sort of like traveling through your wardrobe. Why are you hanging on to it? You know, can you pass it on? Um, and if you work in the industry, you know, not to, not to hang your hat on one hook and say that's a bad fabric or that's, you know, wrong in textiles, you know, but to really look behind a little bit more to, to, to really how it's functioning. Um, and the need it's serving. And it's great to have these conversations because we're textile designers, as I said. We're not fashion designers. We're not at the front, you know, at the front of the stage presenting the products. We're behind. So in a, in a sense, we are the sort of service providers. But we also have huge material knowledge and we're part of a system. So we're systems people. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's, yeah, for me, that's the kind of conversation that I wanted to have with you is just to really take the lid off the system and look at it with you for your listeners. Okay. I think we've come to the end then. <laughs> Good. Okay. Okay, Becky, this was very informative. And uh, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye for now. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. 
It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.